My guest this week is the Royal Commentator, Richard Fitzwilliams. Richard, welcome to the show. A pleasure. Thank you. Now, is there still a place for the monarchy today? I think there is a very important place for the monarchy because it fulfills several purposes. It's, for example, above party politics. I mean, there is probably no period in the past that people have had an enormous affection for their politicians. But certainly at the moment, uh, I would suggest that if we had a former prime minister, which is the obvious choice of this president, or indeed, if you look back over the last 50, 60 years, I think it would be a deeply divisive figure. I think that the case that the monarchy for example, the, the monarch has, it's not that the powers that they actually have, it's the power they deny to others. I think that is an important point, a sort of constitutional longstop. Uh, it's uh, from a democratic point of view. It, uh, the bill, for example, does need a royal signature, but that hasn't been denied since Queen Anne and certainly isn't likely to be. But on the other hand, as a symbol of national unity, what we'll see in June I think will be enormous national celebration. And this happened in 2002, at the time of the Golden Jubilee. And that was after the monarchy had very, very difficult years in the 1990s, as it has recently. There's no denying that. The other thing is, if you look at the powers of the monarch to be advised, encourage and warn. I think you'll find the Queen is an absolute exemplar of that and of duty, which she has over all the decades. But also there, there's a significance in the royal family, for example, the headship of the Commonwealth. It's not automatic, but if it rotated, it would make very little sense because you might very well find a dictator, for example, whether it was Sri Lanka or the Gambia or whatever, that would not be a good replacement in a civil servant like the Secretary General would be a person of very low profile. So, again, that's significant, as is the extraordinary interest in the monarchy, especially in the age of social media. The palace have, uh, I think, adjusted rather well. The various palaces at the press offices of the royals have adjusted well to the period of social media and uh, what this brings in the era of 24 new hour uh, news and the fact the queen has been an expert i think in her virtual broadcasts particularly the one on the pandemic and on dame vera lynn uh, and quoting her the point is also i think that uh, there's no other royal family that excites interest anything remotely like ours, and they're still over 40, for those who say monarchies outmoded. Look at the examples of Scandinavian countries, for example, among the world's most egalitarian. And there are a whole variety of points you could make benefit from royal tours abroad. Some of them may be slightly flawed, but my goodness be the, they're popular and will, in my view, continue to be popular. British business will benefit culture. They're the many patronages and the benefits for charity, there's tourism. So there are a very large number of benefits that you get, I think, not only from a monarchy, but also from the British monarchy. Well, that, it's, it's interesting there. You mentioned some of the, the 
aspects that the royal family and the institution of the monarchy brings to the United Kingdom and to our democratic processes, for example. And you, you mentioned there something about the fact that the monarchy is above party politics. And that, that is really vital in our democratic system. But sometimes there can be a tendency for party politics to bring in the monarchy. I, I'd take, for example, recently the Prime Minister Boris Johnson trying to prorogue parliaments that was eventually ruled as unlawful and uh, potentially bringing uh, the Queen into that debate as well. And so even though the institution remains above party politics, do you think sometimes there can be a tendency for uh, the monarchy to get dragged into it and perhaps show some sort of influence in the political processes? Well, for example, I, I think the Scottish referendum was a point that you could bring up there. Uh, for example, if you take the coronation oath, which involved the Queen's pledge to serve the United Kingdom, we know that in her uh, speech in 1977 for the Silver Jubilee, she backed the idea of the kingdom remaining united. As I say, this was her oath. She's deeply religious. She takes these issues very, very personally. We do know from David Cameron's ill-judged observations to sell his book, which I thought was uh, rather extraordinary, that uh, her plea to the Scottish electorate to think very carefully before they voted uh, was something that Downing Street had approved, apparently, or suggested something not dissimilar would happen. But there's no question there that that is in keeping with, as I say, with the coronation that the Queen gave, and what, even if it wasn't explicit, it was certainly implicit that although the SNP in their independence um, memorandum and looking forward to what they wanted for the future would have kept the monarchy. The facts were that we knew the Queen supported the United Kingdom. So I don't think in that sense she strayed into party politics with reference to the area, and this is very sensitive because there have been some close-run elections. Uh, should the monarch... How does the monarch send for the prime minister? The answer is obviously that the outgoing prime minister must advise as to which or to, to who would have support in the House of Commons. It's left to others. There used to be, and this was a very curious process, uh, it no longer applied, didn't apply after the early 1960s and the period of Harold Macmillan, some form of magic circle operation in the Conservative Party, whereby the monarch had some form of choice or appeared to have some form of choice. Um, but that has long gone. The Queen wants to be very distant from, for example, issues such as Brexit. There were endless attempts to find out what she thought, but no one ever succeeded. And this has been very much the tenor of the Queen's reign. Obviously, it, Prince Charles will be different. We know what he thinks of a large number of issues, but they're not party political issues. The environment is, is all party and internationally recognised, whereas he's been on this issue for 50 years. And as the Queen pointed out when she spoke to COP26, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh had two, and also Prince William's Earthshot Prize is continuous. So the royal family have a good record on that. But we do know 
Prince Charles's views on architecture and homeopathy and a lot of issues. Some of these issues are contentious. He has created his own role. I think that in most cases it has been very constructive, such as his in areas such as his trust. But the area of being an activist king uh, was never on the cards and emphatically isn't. He will follow his mother. Uh, although obviously she is an enigma in many ways. We don't know what she thinks. We know what he thinks in a lot of areas, but uh, there's the weekly audience with the prime minister. There's the opening of parliament. Uh, there is the signing of bills into law. There is the Christmas message and him, what will be one day his own words. But that's essentially it, uh, to be advised, encouraged and warn, and that's similar to his mother. But of course, every monarch will bring their own stamp to whatever the role has to, to or the, whatever the role involves at that time, William in the future, for example. And when we look at the institution of the monarchy and the, the royal family overall, do you think they do still offer value for money to the public? And of, of course, a, a large part of what they do is funded through general taxation and through the, the privy purse, etc. So do you think they are, are still value for money? Well, the security is not revealed, but um, from memory, I think it is an, a basic 85p per person per year, um, plus the extra amount for which is 369 million over 10 years, which I think brings it to one pound 24p per person per year for refurbishing Buckingham Palace, which is after all the world's top HQ. Um, I would suggest most of that is for royal salaries, for refurbishment of uh, royal palaces, for issues dealing with royal, it hasn't been so much in the last couple of years, of course, so royal travel. Um, Essentially, it's important to make the point that this is for the Queen and the Prince of Wales, Duchess of Cornwall, the Cambridges and their family uh, get money from the Duchy of Cornwall, which is uh, a private or considered a private estate. The Queen also pays other members of the royal family who perform duties. There's some 3,000 um, patronages and charities that they're attached to uh, out of the Duchy of Lancaster, which is considered also a private estate. So the essential, the taxpayer, in my view, gets a bargain uh, because it's absolutely impossible to quantify precisely what the royals bring in. The international interest, whether in a wedding, a jubilee, something like that, is absolutely phenomenal as in a royal tour. And, and you mentioned there the, the international effect that the royal family has. And there's no question that the royal family, in particular the Queen, brings a lot of soft power to the UK's diplomatic efforts. But again, does that still justify their role in our governing processes? Well, it seems to me that um, if you look back, and it's over a thousand years now, the role in our governing processes is a constructive one because you have a, a head of state who's above party politics. So far as the soft power element is concerned, you bet it's important because after Brexit, look where a lot of royals were sent and goodwill visits to European countries. Now, it's perfectly true that there's been a tour to the Caribbean by uh, William and Catherine, and there were 
problems in that tour, problems I think that were exploited by uh, somewhat unscrupulous uh, coverage by some, but there were also the fact that you're dealing with 14 countries that out of the 54 in the Commonwealth still keep the Queen. Now, it's up to each individual country what way they want to go. Barbados became a republic, but then Barbados didn't ask the people. Jamaica may well go down that road. It's been part of Jamaican politics for 50 years, but we did, I didn't expect the prime minister to be quite so strong when he met his royal guests about that specific point. Um, but they will have to have a referendum and they did two thirds majority in both houses. They will just simply have to see. Uh, royal tours abroad are a projection of soft power. They bring tremendous interest to the host and also benefits for business, benefits for culture and for coordination in all sorts of ways. So these will continue. They will be altered in some ways. And certainly sometimes things go wrong, but the hype when you get a problem or an event that has to be changed and so forth is quite extraordinary. And as I say, the host country is responsible for the itinerary as well as the Foreign Commonwealth Office. And so what you'll have plenty more, plenty more over the years, countries wanting our oils. And uh, it's not just uh, when our, our royal family goes to visit other countries. Of course, foreign leaders do come and visit the United Kingdom, and many of them really covet a, an audience with the Queen. And we know that she's been a draw for many world leaders over the years who have been coming to the UK. And to have that visit to the palace has been a key aspect of many state visits in particular. But as, as the Queen starts to wind down her, her public duties and uh, she, she starts to stay more and more at Windsor Castle, do you think the other senior royals like uh, Prince Charles or, or Prince William can actually command that sort of status? Or do you think the fact that so many want to visit the Queen is simply a reflection of her global reputation for being so devoted to public service and duty? I think that a state visit has been a very, very valued, just as a royal visit was. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh always went with her, went to, I think it was 272 uh, trips abroad and a lot of state visits. And certainly the state visit here, it is something that's highly valued by an assortment of individuals, some of them like uh, Robert Mugabe or uh, of Zimbabwe, or indeed the Ceausescu's from Romania, extremely undesirable individuals. But of course, it's not the Queen that chooses this. It's the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I would mention, I think, the high points of the Queen's reign. Certainly one of them was the 2011 state visit to Ireland. This put the seal on Bloody Sunday and that absolutely um, oh, sorry, this put the seal, um, put the seal on the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and subsequent to the politicians agreeing, what we, and what is very, very significant, I think, was the change because of the way the Irish people responded in Sinn Féin's attitude subsequently. And indeed, Martin McGuinness was in white tie when, um, I think it was three years later, um, the Irish president, Michael D. Higgins, paid a state visit to Britain. And the other 
very, very significant visit was to a democratic South Africa in 1995. The Queen established a special rapport with Nelson Mandela. So you've got a tremendous interest in these uh, and in people participating, but it's not just because of the Queen, because inevitably one figure, however significant, and she indeed has been unique, she may not have given her name to an era as Elizabeth I did or Victoria, but every, she's the best known head of state in the world. She's the last head of state who saw service in the Second World War. Uh, she's someone who there's tremendous personal affection for. And of course, this means, given the fact she's mobility problems in 96 shortly, there is a, a running down of activities, but equally, Prince Charles will put his own stamp on the role, and then Prince William subsequently. And I think you'll find that governments find it very useful, because obviously all these the visits, both at home and abroad, are at uh, the uh, on the advice of the Foreign and uh, Commonwealth Office. So... Politically, this is a use of soft power that is very useful to the British government. And on Prince Charles defining the monarchy when, when he does eventually take the throne, he's been quite vocal and quite public in wanting to make the institution of the monarchy much more streamlined and slimmed down. But is that enough to keep them relevant in the 21st century? Well, the idea of a streamlined and slimmed down monarchy has been associated with him, but of course, for reasons that uh, have undoubtedly been very awkward for the institution recently, the monarchy has slimmed down. Andrew is in total disgrace. There's no question about that. There's also no question that he has no future royal role to fill, uh, not that I can foresee, even if he might believe otherwise personally. I think that uh, after the disastrous interview with Emily Maitlis uh, in Newsnight, where he showed no compassion whatsoever for Epstein's victims, uh, his catastrophic friendship. And we've been through in the press so much, which has linked to the case against him, which has now been settled by Virginia Roberts Jeffrey. The facts are, however, that he very clearly has no role in the future monarchy. So far as Harry and Meghan are concerned, this too a matter of great disappointment because it unquestionably this was a, a very significant marriage and a significant moment. It went disastrously wrong. There is no doubt whatsoever that you could choose the issues that they brought up in that highly contentious interview on Oprah and as to why it went wrong and whose fault it was. Facts of the matter are that they could have rejuvenized the monarchy, rejuvenated the monarchy. There's no doubt whatsoever that she was articulate. She was a biracial American divorcee who was a former actress. She seemed at ease on the red carpet. She seemed at ease publicly, privately, neither were as senior working royals. They wanted a half in, half out, gave the monarchy itself and the queen and others no, no or practically no notice of wanting to or step back. They were forced to step down. They were not happy. And we've 
yet to see where an unfortunate, to put it mildly, rift in the royal family will actually end up because Harry has a memoir coming out later this year. That's likely to be very contentious. Well, we'll, we'll look at uh, the... Uh, the incidents relating to, and the scandals and controversies relating to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex in a moment. But I do want to pick up on uh, the, the issues around Prince Andrew. And of course, he was a very prominent figure within the royal family. He's often cited as being the Queen's favourite son. Uh, so do you think it was right for him to almost make a brief return to public duties earlier this week by attending Prince Philip's memorial service at uh, Westminster Abbey? I think that on that particular occasion, because it was a service to honour his father, uh, that he was expected to attend. Of course, as we know, he came in with the Queen. Uh, She has mobility problems. He was supporting her physically. And as we know, she's given him a good deal of support in recent months. As his mother you can understand her personal affection for him. That explains that particular um, appearance at that event. Whether he appears at all in the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, I wouldn't have expected that he would. And I don't think that, uh, as we know, uh, Prince Charles and Prince William certainly see no future for him whatsoever uh, in future. It's impossible to be precise as to what will happen. The fact that he may believe that he has a future in the royal family, I see no chance whatsoever since he's, after all, stepped down. He won't be using his title and... Essentially, um, I would see what happened at his father's memorial service as a one-off, so to speak. And, and of course, you mentioned that the supports the Queen has given Prince Andrew through those uh, US court cases in relation to uh, Virginia Roberts and the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. And she has contributed significantly towards those legal costs and has been supporting him financially. But as well as that, it was reported this week that Prince Andrew had received over a million pounds through fraudulent acts and is potentially facing another legal battle, this time in the High Court. So has Prince Andrew now become just simply too much of a liability to the royal family? And again, just to follow on from what you've said as well, do you think it's time that he is just completely 100% cut out of the institution of the monarchy or the firm, if you like? Well, I mean, so far, obviously, I have to be careful as far as uh, future legal actions are concerned, but in so far as what has happened, um, with reference to his disastrously unwise friendships. And he and his former wife, they still live together. They're very close. Um, Sarah, Duchess of York. Their behaviour, which has so often seemed uh, entitled, their particular lifestyle, um, I, I think that it's absolutely clear to all royal watchers, and certainly looking to the future, that he has absolutely no role to play in the royal family, in royal engagements. He might appear at an occasion, as he did earlier this week, 
which has something to do or has links to the royal family, but it certainly wouldn't be a royal engagement where there were links or obligations to the public. He's lost all his his patronages and his honorary military links, and I see no chance in any way in the future of him returning to royal life. Okay, well, well, let, let's move away from Prince Andrew for a moment, and let's look at uh, the recent Commonwealth tour made by William and Catherine. And the Commonwealth is an enormous part of the, the institution of the monarchy, and we know at, at the Queen's request that Prince Charles will succeed her as head. But on this tour, Prince William was quite open in saying that he doesn't take for granted the fact that he will automatically become the Commonwealth's head. He's <coughs> already mentioned that uh, it, it could go to uh, the Secretary General of the organisation or to an, another civil servant, former leader, whichever. But do you think the Commonwealth does still have a place in the world or is it just perhaps a relic of colonial Britain? If the Commonwealth was just a relic of colonial Britain, you wouldn't have countries like Rwanda, Mozambique, which aren't former British colonies, wanting to be members of it, and you wouldn't have had all 54 remaining members of it. It's perfectly true that the link for the vast majority goes back to a colonial period. But the importance of the Commonwealth is the fact that it's an association of free states and that they do share certain principles, obviously some more than others in um, some ways, but you've got a huge amount of cooperation, where, I mean, whether it's parliamentary cooperation or whether it's war graves, whether it's cultural matters and some, there's this huge number of organizations that public see, say, the Commonwealth Games, and that is a public spectacle, but it's a very, very important use of soft power too, not only for Britain, but also a great benefit to some of the smaller states. So that's why it's continued. And it's also, I would suggest the Queen personally, who's been responsible because British Prime Ministers very often haven't been especially keen on the Commonwealth. It's the Queen's effort that has kept the Commonwealth relatively together, I would say. It is loose-knit, but then that's its strength in the sense that the countries are so disparate. So obviously you have different Commonwealth countries. If you look at India's um, response to, say, Russia's appalling invasion of Ukraine, it's differed from those of other Commonwealth countries. There's no common policy. But to have the organisation there is, and it eases, um, and indeed, it enhances links between countries. That must be a good thing. And this Commonwealth tour that took place last week, you mentioned that it's had some, well, you think it's had some unfair criticism. But was, was it just the, the total disaster many claimed it to be? I think it was so easy to say it was a disaster. What actually happened? There was um, an engagement in Belize that had to be cancelled. There was a pretty brisk advocacy of a republic by the Jacobin prime minister. There were two images which were considered redolent of white colonialism. And I think that those could have been clearly rethought, one after a soccer match and the other was an inspection of troops. Those who actually saw the world couple in Belize, in uh, 
Jamaica and in the Bahamas, I think the vast majority liked them and indeed were delighted that they'd come. I do think that you would have expected protests because republicanism has been part of life in Jamaica. And it's interesting, in Jamaica, monarchy has still remained despite 50 or so years. I mean, Michael Manley, when he was prime minister in the 1970s, was advocating a republic. So they do have to have a referendum constitutionally. And it, the last poll was 55% was suppose, were uh, in favour of a republic, but they haven't voted yet. And I mean, it's important when, one is, uh, when one is looking at monarchy and a republic, it's always important if a country is a monarchy and going to change, what does it put in its place that appeals to the people? The 1999 referendum in Australia was a disaster for the Republicans to their great shock and horror, partly because of the alternative that was offered. And we, we've discussed already that there have been a few Caribbean countries w- wishing to seek independence, become republics. But you know, be, beyond the Caribbean, as, as you mentioned, Australia's uh, also got the Queen as head of state, as has Canada, New Zealand. They're all leading world powers at the moment. And again, they've considered uh, republicanism in the past. So when we reach that point, when the Queen is no longer on the throne, do you think those countries would start to reassess their relationship with the monarchy and perhaps pursue a path towards independence? Well, it's important to stress that all these countries are independents. They've chosen to remain monarchies, but they it's entirely up to them. Uh, all the nations of the Commonwealth are actually independent countries. It's very, very possible that some will choose a republic um, in coming years, because as I say, there are 14 of them. It's worth remembering there are over 40 monarchies still in the world. That includes the Scandinavian countries, the world's most egalitarian. And monarchy was probably regarded 100 years ago as being outmoded by many people. But it's links to history and tradition and also ceremonial, colourful side of it, all of these things, plus the fact that it is so newsworthy. And also on royal tours and on various visits, tremendous amounts of goodwill, but also the bits boosted by promotion, the fact a country promotes itself uh, by having a royal visitor or by coming its president or uh, coming to Britain on a state visit. Monarchy, it's unusual. The very fact that it goes back so many years into the past means that they, it, it linking with history as it does, linking with traditions that a lot of people might think are outmoded, but also which fascinate a lot of people. And also there's the head of state of the arm, the links with the armed forces. My monarchs used to lead their armies into battle. The last to do so was George II in the Dettingen against the French in the 1740s. But the links that the royals have with different regiments and so forth, it's very, it's, it's, it's significant in a democracy because it's the queen, it's uh, the monarch who's head of the armed forces, the commander in chief, not a politician. So it's again one of those 
those safe democratic safeguards that I mentioned earlier. That's why it's so easy for many people to regard a hereditary monarchy as outmoded. But in point of fact, it's very, very much alive. Britain has an unwritten constitution and monarchy fits it like a glove, but it has for 1100 years passed the one 17th century gap, which was, of course, a civil war, and the people couldn't wait to get the monarchy back. And with this royal tour, there were a number of um, allegations and uh, comments made about the fact that there there seemed to be hints of racism throughout the tour, and uh, there were criticisms of the relationship between the royal family and uh, other Caribbean countries. But racism allegations have also been the reason, or one of the main reasons anyway, for Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to step back as senior royals and leave public service. Now, of course, we should note that Buckingham Palace has repeatedly denied those accusations of racism made by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. But do you think the royal family does have a problem when it comes to issues around race? I think that it most certainly had a problem after the Oprah interview. Um, This was, uh, these allegations were absolutely toxic. I would point out that If you actually listen to the interview and the context of precisely when Meghan said and when Harry said that uh, there had been a question about uh, the colour of Archie's skin, which of course was deplorable, that they were talking about different times. I merely mentioned that because Oprah was full of inconsistencies. But the facts were that these were very serious allegations and the royal family clearly was damaged by an interview that, frankly, didn't probe any of the, Oprah didn't probe any of the questions she asked. They put their side of it, and they did so at a period, I would add, though it wasn't planned this way, when the Duke of Edinburgh was extremely ill in hospital. The facts of the matter are, Oprah was very damaging. Any accusations of racism are absolutely toxic, But I would suggest that in future, people will look back at that interview more critically than they did the morning after, because they mentioned a royal racist. They didn't say who it was. Then Oprah appeared the next day to say it wasn't the Queen or the Duke of Edinburgh. But we still don't know who it was. And the handling of that, the use of an unofficial spokesperson, Ovid Scobie, or indeed Gail King, whose links with Oprah to comment on the links with the royal family and how the royal rift is progressing or how issues are progressing or not. All of this, we have to ask a question, what precisely do the Sussexes want? They've got Talents galore because Harry uh, with the Invictus Games, I mean, he's done a great deal. No, we know he's emotionally, he feels deeply, deeply vulnerable because of what happened to his mother. And he's spoken very, very openly about mental health. And we know Meghan's campaigning on issues, gender equality, racial equality, all of these are very, very important. They're particularly pivotal today, and the Sussexes have the ability to do a lot of good. I would say, however, that their relations with, certainly Megan's, with both sides of her family, some of them on her father's side, do not seem to be constructive individuals. But if you also don't get on with 
your husband's family, the royal family, people will start asking questions, and I think are asking questions, as to precisely what the Sussexes want and what future they want. And also, is it not possible to be more constructive? Oprah, the Oprah interview did indeed, and you mentioned one reason why there were several, did a lot of damage to the monarchy. The Queen put out a statement saying that some recollections may differ. It was all she could do. But it was a shock interview. There have been such interviews before. Panorama with the Princess of Wales in the 19, 1995, or indeed when she cooperated with the book by Andrew Morton, which detailed how unhappy she was married to the Prince of Wales. So we can only hope looking forward that things are more constructive, whereas the Royal Rift doesn't look like being healed to me. Things need not be as bitter as they were. I don't think that the Sussexes are entitled as they seem to think. I do, however, believe that they could have a very constructive role, perhaps in American politics, if that is what Meghan wants to do, but that it would be beneficial, I would have thought, for them, as well as for everyone else, that their rift with the royal family was patched over. If Harry brings out a book critical of the royals, and he might very well, it's certainly what's expected, I cannot see what good it could possibly do them. And if they keep beating the same drum, eventually there will be a diminution in the number of people who will listen. But because monarchy is as potent as it is, you've got the following dilemma. If things go well, you're doing well and you can exploit the use of soft power. You can also be fascinated by the tremendous interest in the historical or in a jubilee or some commemoration. If things go badly, you've got huge international pressure immediately. So we'll have to see. And just looking back on the constitutional role of the, the royal family, the relationship that's been struck between the, the rest of the royal family and with princes Harry and Andrew have raised quite, quite an interesting but very technical uh, question around the constitution because of course as the third and fourth oldest members in the line of succession that makes princess harry and andrew councillors of state so should the queen be unable to conduct any official business they have to uh, step up and with prince william being in the caribbean and prince charles being in ireland at the same time should something have happened last week to the queen then it would have been most likely with harry being in america it would have been prince andrew who has to step up and do those constitutional duties. So do you think there needs to be some very serious examination and potential reform to the, those constitutional responsibilities within the royal family to avoid having su such a, a situation like that? Yes, you're right. The issue dealing with the Regency Act of 80, this was uh, the 1937 Act. What it uh, clearly lays down now, uh, provision for four councillors of state, Prince Charles, Prince William, Prince Harry, and Prince Andrew. Um, if Parliament were, for some reason, to take, well, for reasons that we can gather, to take Prince Andrew's uh, role away, then that would fall to Princess Beatrice. When 
Charles ascends the throne, his consort becomes a uh, councillor of state, and so you would then have uh, Prince William and then Prince Harry and then Princess Beatrice. And eventually, when the future king, which George, becomes 18, he becomes councillor of state, and his sister, Princess Charlotte, her brother, Prince Louis, when they're 21, they do. So that will, in fact, evolve and include the Cambridge's children. But at the moment, you're perfectly right to give the example that you gave. And indeed, when Prince Charles had COVID and William was, for I think it was only a day or so in the United Arab Emirates, had anything happened to the Queen, it would indeed have caused a, a problem. And there is a, a clear need whether or not it be dealt with can only be dealt with by Parliament for this to be looked at. So just to, to finish then, the Queen obviously marks her platinum jubilee and she's the first monarch in British history to reach such a milestone. What do you think has been the most outstanding part of the Queen's 70-year reign? I think the Queen's greatest achievement has been the continuity, the fact that at 21, she broadcast from South Africa that she would serve her whole life, and she's done it brilliantly. There's also the question that she's somewhat of an enigma. Coming from an era which was deferential, these days, when, and I'm glad to say it, in a totally different era, but people don't know what the Queen thinks. They don't know her attitude to various things other than enthusiasms and issues such as horses or dogs or the like, or corgis. This has been, I think, beneficial because, again, rather like a bitterly contested issue like Brexit, she's been able to remain above the prey and completely above it. But what's also significant is her support that she received from the Duke of Edinburgh. I mean, the fact were that they've temperamentally, they were so different, she was cautious, rather conservative, a bit shy. Her first prime minister, it must have been quite daunting, Winston Churchill, she said 14. Um, the Duke of Edinburgh, abrasive, dynamic, energetic, but it was the mix of the two of them, uh, different in temperament, but quite literally a brilliant combination to serve the country and serve the monarchy. And the fact that he was able, though he had involved giving up the career in the Navy that he would so have loved, to be as tremendously active as he was, not just with the engagements of the Masolo and supporting the Queen, but also in a whole variety of ways. Um, very often people haven't heard of whether it was writing books and philosophy, whether it was uh, design, artistic issues, they painted, for example. And uh, as for his sporting achievements, whether it was a pilot playing polo, uh, um, putting uh, carriage driving as a sport internationally on the map, well, there were a whole variety of things that he put his attention to. People knew him for his gaffes and the fact that he could occasionally be temperamental, but the facts were that it was an amazing contribution and it's the Queen has been very, very fortunate that she had him to support her and the country has been phenomenally fortunate that they've had the Queen who has been 
extraordinarily diligent and has a tremendous sagacity, is so well known as an international figure, but also having served, seen service, I mean, her first engagement was in 1942 when she inspected the Grenadier Guards uh, during the war and was made their colonel by George VI, her father. And also I think that the Queen's reign, Britain has undergone seismic change. She's been a symbol of continuity and that is tremendously valuable. But she's always said, I must be seen to be believed, she pioneered the walkabout and so forth. There have been a variety of changes. Monarchy tends to change quite gradually. Obviously the aspects linked to the Princess of Wales' death and the response. But on the whole, and one looks at social media, virtual broadcasts and so forth, the monarchy has kept in touch. It's kept its relevance. And for better or worse, it's certainly in the eye of a world that remains absolutely fascinated by it. And just finally then, with with your experience observing the royal family and reporting on uh, various tours or visits they've done in their activities, what do you think the the future of the monarchy looks like beyond the Platinum Jubilee? Well, you referred to a slimmed-down monarchy. As I say, it is already uh, smaller. But I still see the charitable function as being very, very important. I think also that uh, the links to the hundreds of charitable bodies as well as regiments and so forth, I think they will continue. I see the exactly the same link above party politics continuing. Prince Charles may will ascend the throne one day. One, he may, in his heart of hearts, long to be some form of an activist, but there is no way that he can be a king and really be in any way different from his mother, even if we know his strong views on certain issues. Prince William, Catherine, there's no question that uh, they have a glamorous side. After all, they are younger. But it's important to remember that the Queen on the eve of her platinum jubilee year, the fact that she announced that Camilla would be queen would be queen consort. I think that was important because it was such a significant issue to get out of the way with all the baggage it has going back past years. So I see very much a continuation with Buckingham Palace refurbished, but obviously there will be alterations. Things may well be on a somewhat smaller scale, but it is always worth remembering uh, when one is talking about cutbacks here and reductions there and that this was too costly and that the, uh, a particular individual would do things in a different way, that people do like a show. The British monarchy provides that. Sometimes it provides it in spades, because if you look at the what could be called the very deep rift with the Sussexes, you've got something that is a perpetual problem, and that is something that I hope in the future will be solved. But I have no way of knowing 
on the issue of security, Harry has just taken the British government to court. Uh, he believes it isn't safe for him and his family to come here because they don't get the latest information from the Metropolitan Police. Now, very, very clearly, the future ought, for everyone's sake, to bring an end to that rift between the brothers who were once inseparable. But also, the future, there's no doubt royal tours will take into account certain glitches that occurred with the Cambridges in the Caribbean. But as I say, I believe William will be the head of the Commonwealth because the organisation hasn't really got much of a future. If it had a rotating head among its heads of state, you could get very undesirable countries leading it. And I also, as civil servant, would be, in my view, too bland. I think that, obviously, the importance is to bring young people on board that they have the same belief in the institution that a lot of middle-aged and older people do. But there's also the worldwide fascination with it. And that, for better or worse, shows no sign of abating. Okay, Richard Fitzwilliams, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure.